Good to see you. Happy Father's Day. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Man, I, just, I love that song. Um, so we're in our last week of a five-week series in our core values here at Hollis Center Church. We've been covering the five things that we would say we are about these five elements of the Christian life. We talked about Bible-based preaching and teaching. We talked about worship. We talked about humility. Last week we talked about prayer, and today we'll be talking about neighboring. If you don't know who I am, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm a member of the preaching team. And I thought a good illustration for this is that there are pieces of equipment in our lives that we are required to have at all times, but they are more useful at some times than others. I think seatbelts and life jackets are two excellent examples in that You are required by law, if you are in a boat, you need to have a life jacket for every person. But if you're just taking the canoe across the little tiny pond behind your house, that life jacket probably isn't that important. You're required to have it, but you don't really need it. But if you're on Sebago, or if you're in the ocean, that life jacket could be life-saving. If you don't know how to swim, that life jacket could be life-saving. Same thing with seatbelts, right? 99% of the time, we don't need a seatbelt. It's that 1% of the time that we wear the seatbelts for. And so today, as we talk about neighboring, this act, this labor of loving our neighbors, being good neighbors, we're going to recognize that this is a part of the Christian life that we are always called to in Scripture. But in our time here, In the day and the age that God has chosen that we would live in here in our community, neighboring is more important than ever. It's more important than ever. I think that the church in the West is having an identity crisis. The church in the West is having an identity crisis. Because for hundreds of years, Christianity has been the predominant religion of countries here in the Western world, in Europe and in America. And so the church has traditionally been in a fairly influential place in society. In some cases, every single person to be a citizen had to be baptized. And in many cases, if you wanted to be involved in politics, you had to be very involved in the church. There was always this kind of this combination between the church and the culture. And so people who did not know Jesus would still, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, come to church because that was what was expected of them in their society. And the times, oh, they are changing. Like the Bob Dylan song, it's, it just, it ain't ain't that way anymore. It isn't. People around here, I mean, you can try to bully them to come to church and they don't even want to come, right? There's no longer this social pressure to come to church if you aren't a Christian. And yet, the way that we've done ministry for hundreds of years has been centered around the idea that unbelievers are going to come to our Sunday morning service. And so neighboring is even more important than ever. Let's pray. Lord, just as Abby prayed, there have been so many times where we've neglected neighboring. We've been like those religious figures in the story of the Good Samaritan where we just kept walking. 
We've stayed in our lane, and so Holy Spirit, please convict us in this time. May these words be yours and not my own. Please change us for your glory. Amen. So kind of the main point that I'm making today is that in a post-Christian community, in a post-Christian community like ours, we make disciples through neighboring. Here in our little region, kind of the space wedge between Portland, Maine and Auburn, Maine, is one of the most post-Christian places in the U.S. And that term post-Christian refers to a setting where Christianity was the predominant religion in the culture and now no longer is. So in a post-Christian community like ours, we make disciples through neighboring. Real quick, we're going to go through the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. So in Matthew 22, 37 through 39, I'm just going to summarize it, but in Matthew 22, 37 through 39, the religious authorities come to Jesus and they try to trap him. And they say, uh, which commandment in the law is the most important? Because then if he said, well, this one is, well, they could say, oh, well, you're missing this aspect of it and you're over-focusing on this. But Jesus says, well, it's simple. Love the Lord your God. That is the greatest commandment. Everything hinges on that. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That obedience to God can be summarized in loving God and loving others. That's why we have it on the wall in the entryway. The first thing we see when we come into this church is loving God and loving others. If we are not doing those two things, we are not living in obedience to our creator. We call that the great commandment. And then when Jesus left this world after the resurrection, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he gave his disciples this instruction. And most of us are very familiar with these words. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And in the book of Acts, we also see this statement where Jesus said that you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That God has called us to love him, to love others, and that as we go out, as we, go, as we live, we make disciples. We draw people to Christ so that they may know him and follow him as well. Loving God and loving others. Drawing people to Christ, teaching them to follow Jesus, baptizing them. This is the core of what it means to be a Christian. Now here's an example of Jesus' attitude in how he treated people who were not part of the religious circle people who were not part of the religious community. If you turn with me to this, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. It says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose, and he followed him, and as he reclined at table in his house, 
Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus does something that is just completely unheard of for a religious leader in Jewish culture. And that rather than just spend time with the pious people and discuss the lofty things of God's law, Jesus is walking along and he sees a traitor. Tax collectors were traitors in the eyes of the Jews. They worked for the oppressive Roman government and cheated their countrymen on a daily basis. And yet Jesus sees one of these guys on the side of the road and he says, hey, come follow me. And then we get this picture of Jesus eating and drinking with a bunch of rebels and sinners. And some of them are beginning to follow him. That he's having fellowship with these people and the religious elite hate it. We saw when we went through the book of Mark, they accused Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard. They were not happy that he was eating and drinking with these undesirables in society. But this is the strategy of Jesus. This is the love of Jesus. That in his ministry, he says, I came for the sinners. I came for those who know that they're sick, who know that they need me. And so Jesus spent time with rough people. He spent time with people in situations that probably weren't completely comfortable. That's the example of Jesus. And the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter, please turn with me here to 1 Peter chapter 2, gives Christians some principles of how we are to live as good neighbors, as examples of Christ. 1 Peter 2. Verses 11 and 12 say this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If we jump down to verse 16, it says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Peter opens up and he says, beloved as sojourners and exiles. He paints this picture that as Christians, we are not true um, citizens of of the countries we live in that we belong to a heavenly kingdom. And so we are immigrants, we are exiles, we are wandering through the nations of this world, belonging to a heavenly kingdom, but living in earthly kingdoms. And he says, look, you guys are sojourners and exiles. You're living among people who do not know God. Live honorably, honor everyone. Abstain from your desires, abstain from sexual immorality. 
Do not live because you know that God has forgiven you. Do not live just, well, God has forgiven me so I can do whatever I want. No, don't use your freedom for evil. You have a witness in the place where you live. Live as people who are free. Live as servants of God. Honor everyone. Those two words, honor everyone, are the, is that not a hard pill to swallow? It is for me to look at that and say, honor everyone? Like, really? Are there not some exceptions? Is there a footnote here that has a list of people I don't need to honor? Like, well, there's that person in office. I don't need to honor them. Oh, wait, it says honor the emperor right below that, just in case we were looking for the footnote. What about that family member that just makes everything a nightmare? No, it says honor everyone. That because we have been forgiven by Christ... We have been given honor that we do not deserve, and we are to extend that honor to the people around us. In a post-Christian community like ours, we make disciples through neighboring. We see this picture starting to develop that Jesus wanted us to be in the world, but not of the world. That we would not live like everyone around us. We would not be enslaved to the same desires as everyone around us. But we would be present with the people around us. Living with the people around us. We would not be separated from the people. We would be separated from the influence of the world. Now, how many of you like antiques? Or you like collecting stuff, bartering stuff, trading stuff? Antiques are valuable because they're in short supply usually. Usually there was some good quality item that was made years ago. So maybe 100 years ago they made 5,000 chairs. Handmade, beautiful chairs, and so those chairs went out to families and individuals all over the US, and people used those chairs and some of them got broken. Some of them got lost in house fires. Some of them fell off of trucks on the side of the road. And then some of those chairs survived, and then the next generation of homeowners broke some of those chairs, discarded some of those chairs. Maybe they painted that chair. So you look at these 5,000 chairs, and 100 years later, maybe there are 25 of them. And now they're really valuable because there are only 25 of these chairs because people kept trading them back and forth and back and forth, and there were no new chairs being made. This is how a lot of antiques gain their value. That's not how the kingdom of God is supposed to work. But it's often how we try to function as churches. Because God has called us to produce, that we are to go out and make disciples. And yet often what churches do here in the Western world, even in our own community, is take disciples. We're called to make disciples, but we often just take disciples. That we'll grab some people from this church, and we'll grab some people from that other church across town, and they'll take some of our people, but we'll just trade the Christians around, and we'll all get to survive as churches. Right? So there'll be some people here for a few years, and then they'll go over to that church for a few years, and to that church for a few years, and maybe they'll come back. And look, I know some of you might be going, David's adding me right now. Okay? I'm not trying to target anyone in this room. There are good reasons to leave churches. 
But the sad reality is, as a pastor, I see a cycle. Because I spend time with these other pastors, and we track people. (laughs) Right? Like, you don't think we don't talk to each other? We track people. And there is a culture of people just rotating around and around and around and around. And sure, there are probably some personal issues there to be dealt with with you know, individuals or situations or whatever. Right? It's, a, it's a complex issue. I don't want to paint it with a broad brush. But the majority of churches here in the West, we try to grow by attracting Christians rather than making disciples out of those who don't know Jesus. And when we do that, when all of our programs are about just attracting Christians from other churches, we are just trading chairs. That we have, you know, let's say there are 30,000 Christians in our area. And so the church is going to divide up those Christians and shift those Christians around. And maybe this church gets 30 of them and this church gets 70 of them. This church gets 400 of them. But if we are not making disciples, if there are not people who are do not know Christ, who then come to know Christ. We're going to run out of chairs. If I look at the past year, right, and I don't want to be a bummer on a holiday, but if I look at the past year, two years, man, we've seen beloved brothers and sisters in Christ die. And praise the Lord, they're, they're in heaven They're having a better church service than us right now, right? But we've seen beloved brothers and sisters go home to be with the Lord. We've also seen people leave the faith. And maybe we're not super aware of that because they just kind of tend to slip out. But if you track what's going on with some of their social media platforms or you have conversations with them, man, we've, we've seen people that were among us and now they're gone. They don't want anything to do with the church. They don't want anything to do with God. This happens every single year. And Jesus promised this, that people would get snatched up. So if none of us live forever in these bodies, in this life, and people do leave the faith, if all we are doing is trading an existing body of Christians, that will go down and down and down and down. And that is exactly what is happening here in the West. And we've seen happen over the past hundred years. There are deserted church buildings across the state of Maine. Try to count them when you're on your vacations this summer. It's haunting how many deserted church buildings there are in our state. Transfer growth, that is Christians transferring from one church to another church, is a path to church death. And if we as a church here at Hollis Center, if we say, well, we're just going to try to be the best church, so that people from other churches will come to our church. Yeah, that might work for 10 more years, that might work for 20 more years, but we will get to a point where that will no longer be sustainable. God has called us to make disciples, not take disciples. And as we just talked about, we no longer live in a time where the majority of people who don't know Jesus in our community are just gonna come here on a Sunday morning for the heck of it. They aren't. Now, praise the Lord, occasionally the Holy Spirit draws someone in here and they get saved. But that is an abnormality. We need to go out. We can't just focus on Sunday morning. 
And I think the unfortunate thing is after spending a year of what we just experienced, many of us find that our people skills are lacking, right? And either that we went down into our hidey hole and didn't come up, or we were trying to deal with people and people were just awful during COVID, right? And there were all sorts of arguments about this and that and that and this. I think a lot of us really just need to sharpen our people skills. That's what Peter is really calling those people to do is to live honorably, to live honorably among the Gentiles, live honorably among those who do not know God. And the point that Peter makes that I skipped over earlier is the point of that is that so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That unbelievers would see the way we live, the way we treat them, the way we love them, and either God visits them with salvation and they believe, or on the day of their judgment, they go, Lord, you sent Christians into my life who lived the way they were supposed to, and I still rejected you. That's on me. Glory to you. That's our responsibility in the equation. So how do we do this, right? How do we live as good neighbors? How do we live as good neighbors? Well, we could go into great depth on this. I just have kind of two points that I think will help us in pursuing that. The first one, the first way that we grow in this art of neighboring is to spend quality time with those who do not know Jesus. To spend quality time with those who do not yet know Jesus. Aaron Menikoff says this, we know our friends need the good news, but we have a hard time opening our homes and opening our mouths to make the gospel known. Too often, we're like a postal carrier who can't seem to leave the driveway. And that, when I read that, that really hit me. Because that is how I've often felt growing up in church, is that I know that these people need the good news. They need to know that there's no way to have peace with God by your own good works. But that rather God has come down, he suffered and took the very wrath of God on himself so that we can have peace with him. That he welcomes us as sons and daughters forgiven and free. That that is a message worth carrying to our neighbors. And yet I've often felt like that postal worker just trapped in the driveway. Just paralyzed because I have no way that I really know how to share this and communicate this. And especially when you spend all of your time in Christian settings, it's pretty hard because you think, well, I've got to go knock on someone's door and hand them something. Or I've got to have a, a really good conversation in the grocery store. And that's just straight up intimidating. Does God work through those things? He still does. But I think what God has called us to in Scripture and in our current day and age is neighboring, first and foremost, that we would build relationships with those who don't know Jesus. Regardless of where we send our kids to school, whether it's public school, private school, home school, there are so many ways for us to get involved with the families in our community. Right? We got programs like Boy Scouts and local sports and there's local community events that we can volunteer at. Do you know how much of a message it is if we were to sign up and volunteer for one of these little events that like Hollis puts on like Pirate Fest? 
that these people who are running this event see this family show up and say, we want to help, man, that speaks volume. And we should be looking for ways to be involved with the people in our community. And one of the easiest ways to do this is to be actual neighbors to our actual neighbors. What a radical idea. Right, that we would have them over for a barbecue. And not like you have, like, here's the roast beef over here, and here's your brisket over here, and you got some Bible tracts laid out on the table, and you got to take one with your napkin. But no, that you build honest relationships with these people, and in that place of honest relationship, you share what you care about. And you care about what each other care about. I'm getting ahead of myself, but Alexander Strach says this, and this was another quote that just was like, oh, like just a punch to the gut for me. An open home is a sign of an open heart and loving sacrificial spirit. A lack of hospitality is a sure sign of selfish, lifeless, loveless Christianity. Here in our main culture, we tend to view our homes as our castle and our retreat. And I do believe there is a place for maintaining that. There is a place for setting up this place of safety and rest. And especially, and there's so much coming at children in this day and age, there needs to be a place of safety and rest. Absolutely. We need to be wise in how we welcome people into our homes. But our homes are an amazing resource to build relationships with people. If we were to invite one of our unsaved coworkers to come to a Bible study in this building, that is about one of the most intimidating things you can ask someone to do in 2021. Because of the way churches and clergy and Christians have been portrayed in the media, accurately or inaccurately, people are actually sometimes afraid of church buildings. That a place for me growing up in the church, this is a place of peace and rest, and I just love it here. But for people who haven't grown up with that or they've had some bad experiences, buildings like this actually scare them. But yet we have a space where we can welcome these people into our homes and just get to know them and show love to them and offer some food. Be actual neighbors. Secondly, and this is what I think Peter is really pointing to, is we stop acting like pagans or Christians and live like Jesus. We stop acting like pagans or Christians and stop acting like Jesus. Now that might seem confusing the way I worded that, but I'll start with the pagan part of it, right? God calls us to holiness. He calls us to live in a way that draws others to him a way that is honorable, a way that is good, a way that is holy. And none of us are going to do that perfectly. That's why there's grace. But yet, time and time and time again in Scripture, we are called to abstain from the passions of the flesh, to live as those who have been free, to live as those who have been forgiven. That because if we have truly received grace and relationship with the living God, that should change the way we live. And yet I see a vein in Christianity where people have just kind of given up on that concept of holiness. Like it was thrown out with legalism and it wasn't retrieved out of the dumpster. And so people say, well, yeah, I know what the Bible says about my sexuality, but that's just kind of impractical. 
And I know what the Bible says about how I use substances. I know what the Bible says about how I treat others, but I kind of have an exception here, and I can still be a Christian and do that. I see this mentality just growing, especially among people my age. But is that, that is the utter opposite of what Scripture has called us to, because when we live that way, the world looks at us and says, you're just like me. You're just living for yourself. You're just doing what you want. We need to live like the truth statements in the Bible are true. That this is truth that actually changes our lives for the better and is worth following because God is alive. We need to stop acting like pagans. And when we do, we have a process of confessing and forgiving that the world doesn't necessarily have. Now I put Christian in quotation marks because here's what I mean by this. Currently in our culture, the word Christian has a negative connotation. Like just spend an hour looking through Reddit or looking through memes or going pretty much anywhere where especially young people tend to stay on the internet and Christian is almost a curse word. It's almost a slur. I was talking with a pastor friend of mine who had been trying to neighbor, and so they were volunteering at a local organization. And he said, David, you know what is just troubling to me? The worst customers at this place are the Christians. And this wasn't like he was assuming this person's a Christian. No, he's like, I know these people. They're the worst. One of his coworkers, who was a Christian, came to him and said, look, I'm so glad you're here because I want my unsaved you know, coworkers to see that not all Christians are like that. And if any of you have ever worked in a restaurant, generally what I've heard from people who work in restaurants, that the worst day to work in a restaurant is today. Because all the Christians come out of their churches with low blood sugar, and head over, are rude and tip poorly, and then leave. This is to what our culture, our unsaved you know, fellow citizens here, to them, Christian is not a good thing. It's not a good word. And so in a time where people really just have a bad opinion of Christians, we need to live like Jesus and be the Christians who buck the trend. We want to be the Christians where people say, you're not like the other Christians. And they don't say that because, well, we reject this and we're cool and we'll just accept for, you know, whatever you want. No, you're not like the other Christians because you live like Jesus. That's what we want to aim for. That's how we want to neighbor in a post-Christian community like ours, we make disciples through neighboring. And the way that we as a church want to equip you in this, because like I said, I think most of us have pretty rusty people skills, is that in the fall, we're going to go through this book called The Art of Neighboring. And we went through this as a church, or we offered it as a growth group a number of years ago. But we're going to offer this again. I think we're going to try to offer it in multiple formats. We're still trying to plan all this. But we want to make this as available to as many of you as possible. 
is this is a great resource in training us how to strategically and lovingly neighbor our neighbors. And I'm also thinking that there's probably gonna be a little three-week, maybe just a video series, maybe a lesson called How to People. How to People, where we're just gonna get into like basic things of how do you have people over to your house? How do you talk to people that you work with? I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's a good reminder. I think we sometimes need that to, no, I, I can talk to people. I can have people in my home. These are easy and possible things to do, but we hype ourselves up. We believe a lot of lies that, you know, guess what? Our clutter really isn't that big of a deal. Is if you got clutter in your house, everyone else got clutter in their house. You go to someone's house and they don't have clutter in their house, either that person is just a neat freak or they put it away 15 minutes before you showed up, right? Like, should we allow our clutter to get in the way of making our homes a base of kingdom work in loving our neighbors? Is it 9.38? No, it isn't. I was gonna be really excited that someone had it, their, their ringer on at the right time. Dave King of all people. <laughs> speaking of which, speaking of alarms. So remember that Matthew 38 challenge, right? Where you put an alarm for hopefully, math, uh, hopefully 9.38. You could choose a different time if your schedule was wonky. But at 9.38, you get that notification, you get that alarm to pray that God would send laborers out into the harvest here in our community and here in Maine. How many of you did that this week? I wanna see some hands. Look at that, I'm proud of that. But you guys got some work, right? Because that was 30 seconds a day. Raise your hand if you did worse things with 30 seconds of your time over the past week. I wanna see every hand in the air. So for those of you that did the Matthew 938 challenge, Joke's on you, you were praying for yourself. Because God has called us as the laborers to go out. That if you are a born again believer with breath in your lungs, the Holy Spirit within you, guess what, you're the laborer. It's time to go out. That when we pray that prayer, yes, we are praying for more laborers to join the harvest, but we're also praying for ourselves. That we can't just sit on the sidelines and hope that God raises up more missionaries to do the work. No, we do the work. God has put unbelievers in all of our lives that maybe we are the one person that can reach that person through the power of God. So I have two challenges, two really simple challenges this week. The first one is to go out of your way to have one pleasant, encouraging, and or helpful interaction with someone in your community who doesn't know Jesus. I'm not asking you to go up and try to share the Romans road with them. I'm not asking you to go up and try to make them memorize a Bible verse at gunpoint. I'm not trying to make you do any of that, right? This is just have a pleasant, helpful interaction with one of your neighbors or someone in the community. We wanna get ourselves into a rhythm of living out Christ's love daily. And it's in the simple things, the tiny things, day after day after day after day that we build a meaningful relationship. But if every time we go through the store, we're like this the entire way, in and out, 
we're missing opportunities to begin building relationships with the cashiers, to begin building relationships with the other people who shop here in our town. Every time I go into the Waterboro Hannaford, I see like 12 people I know, right? I bet you could go in there when it's closed and there would still be people from this church wandering around in the Waterboro Hannaford. It's impressive, right? So we, we, it's a small town. We see the same people again and again and again and again. Those little interactions add up over the years. And then secondly, this is the second challenge. And this is one that I don't like. It makes me uncomfortable, but every time I do it, it's been impactful. And that is pray for the Holy Spirit to bring to your mind a local unbeliever in your life and then ask that person a question showing that you care about them. So go to a place sometime this week and quiet yourself and just ask for the Holy Spirit to bring someone into your mind to encourage who doesn't know Jesus. And someone's going to come to your mind and then just like text them, hey, I'm thinking of you. How's your week going, right? Our concern and love for others needs to be genuine. We don't love other people just because we want to get them saved. We want them to be Christians. No, we love them because love flows out of us from the living God that our love is genuine, and genuine love will include telling them about the gospel. Genuine love includes truth, but genuine love is also a genuine relationship. It's not a mission, it's a person. In a post-Christian community like ours, we make disciples through neighboring. We need to retool the church We cannot expect that Sunday morning is going to be the epicenter of winning people to the Lord. That day's gone. Like the the altar calls of the past are gone. And though I do pray for revival in churches where we would see Christians coming and broken before the Lord in droves. We have a mission to do. There are people in our community to love, to share with, to grow with. And one of my experiences has been this. When I was a younger Christian, whenever I was interacting with people who didn't know the Lord, I saw it as a debate. I saw it as a challenge. You believe in evolution? You want to bet? (laughs) Right? I was really into that. I was into debating people and, and fighting with people and And it usually didn't go anywhere. Because even if I could beat them in logic, I mean, I would go around with my my coworkers. I could get them to a place where they'd be like, well, I guess what I believe doesn't make any sense. Oh, so you believe in the Bible? No. Because simply beating someone at what they believe isn't going to really change their mind. We also need to change the heart. And one of the most fruitful things that I've found has been having genuine relationships with people who don't know Jesus where it's not a project, it's a person. I have friends I go to, some of them are atheists or homosexuals, and we just talk. And these are situations where we are obviously on very different pages. And so I just ask them questions. Well, like, how would you think through this? Or I'll send them a video. What do you think of this? It's not a, let me fix you right now because I have the answers. It's, I care about you. Let's talk about truth. 
We have some amazing conversations. And I just, I, I pray that that would be the way we live as Christians here in our community. That we are known for genuinely caring about people, but also caring about truth in those relationships. And I believe that God's going to honor that, and there'll be a great harvest from that. But we have to go out and make disciples rather than just try to take disciples. Let's pray. God, you are so good that everyone here is here because other people did the work of making disciples. Whether those were parents or preachers or just simply people who shared the truth with us that had us over for dinner, cared about us more than others, I pray that we would replicate that. That we would be a church that makes chairs rather than just trading them. Holy Spirit, lead us in this work. Anchor us to your truth in it. We pray that we would see a great harvest here in Hollis and the surrounding community for the glory of God. Amen. Thank you.